This episode of 64, a chess podcast, is brought to you by Aim Chess. Use code DAVID30 at checkout to get 30%. Welcome back to 64, a chess podcast. I'm your host, David, and uh, this is actually the second episode of our uh, OTB week. Um, Earlier this week, we talked to John Hartman, uh, editor of US Chess, and today I'm joined by Chess Gains on Twitter and on uh, chess.com and on YouTube, aka Max Farbaro, who is, uh, you're all basically a USCF expert. Yeah, just about. Just, you know, so you're like 1982 something. Yeah, yeah, the over the board rating hasn't quite hit 2,000 yet, but uh, I did hit 2,000 in uh, USCF online rating, which doesn't count for a whole lot, but maybe just the indication of what's yeah. to come. I yeah, and I mean, you just you had a what 2156 performance in the Cherry Blossom class. Yeah, yeah, performance was pretty good because I played in the under 2300 section, and uh, everyone pretty much that I played was over 2100. So yeah, it gave me a pretty good. Uh, pretty good score so yeah so you played in the uh you played in the cherry blossom classic it's one of the first like serious over the board tournaments to come back i know charlotte's been doing some stuff um i mean some a lot of chess clubs are opening up but this is one of these like very serious tournaments uh in america like if you want to like really you know chase your titles um talk about your experience yeah so this was the as you said one of the big first uh, tournaments that kind of resumed the biggest tournament that i have ever played in because you know growing up as a kid i played um, and I played a lot of scholastic events, some team events, some local club events, but this was definitely the biggest, you know, it was a four day tournament, um, five day for the open section. I played in the under 2300. So four days, uh, seven rounds, you know, super classical time control, two hours, 30 seconds increment. And uh, I think the biggest, uh, my biggest thing that I enjoyed about it was just the fact that it was just a really authentic kind of experience. You're playing with wooden pieces that probably cost like hundreds of dollars if you want to buy them and they were like just all over the tournament hall everyone was kind of different authentic really cool um but yeah it was definitely a good experience to play uh you know it's one thing to play online and i played some training games with people but when you're actually there and you're facing an opponent it's just uh it's an intense experience and something that was definitely missed over the past year so you're someone who's you've played a lot of otv chess in your in your in your life a decent amount. Yeah, I would say I've played about 100 events or so. Nothing super crazy. You know, there's people who right. play like every week, you know, as soon as they get the chance. Right. As a kid, I played maybe, you know, once or twice a month. Not as much kind of in the later years. But yeah, I would say I have a decent amount of experience. So I guess um, for someone like I, I just started playing OTB chess again. I mean, I only played like two events before COVID. Um, and then, you know, I started grinding a lot on online. And I really struggled. I've talked about this on an earlier episode I recorded, um, but I really struggled like to kind of translate my my strength online to over the board. 
I'm like, you know, about 1900, 2000 on Lee Chess, um, which I, I think is pretty good. Uh, to quote uh, John Hartman, I know how to move the horsey. But um, I, I am like 1000 USCF. Uh, not really, I'm getting good positions, but I, I'm, I'm really struggling to just kind of like take that th- 2D strength and put it into 3D. So do you have any kind of advice for me and also maybe for listeners who are just getting into OTB chess themselves? Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard people talk about that, how they find that kind of like three-dimensional over-the-board experience different from playing online. And uh, for me, I think I've never really felt that because I've grown up doing both. And I think it's important to kind of balance the two. You know, I was I was always playing over the board, you know, like at school, at local clubs. And I was also playing online, like back in the day on the Internet Chess Club, more recently, chess.com, Lee Chess. So I think it's important to kind of have a balance. And one thing that's helped me over the past year, kind of in preparation for when over the board returns, is whenever I would play a training game, I would have my actual 3D chess set out. So I would basically be doing my thinking over the board. And then I would just be plugging my moves in on the computer. And that would kind of allow me to simulate that tournament experience of actually thinking, you know, calculating with 3D pieces. People say that that's part of the thing that they struggle with. I'm I'm sure you're the same, like just kind of visualizing everything when you're staring at a giant board that's, you know, X amount of feet long versus just looking at a small screen, maybe just on the phone. So it's definitely important to have that kind of uh, 3D experience and to integrate that with the kind of online. And, you know, um, what have you been doing over the last, you know, year or so since the pandemic? Did you play tournaments before the pandemic or were you more busy with school? Like, um, and really what I want to know is like, what were you doing to prepare for over the board tournaments more recently as you, your aspiration is to get a master title? So in the past couple of years before the pandemic, I was sort of getting back into competitive chess. You know, I didn't play any tournaments for about two and a half years. And I kind of got back into things in college. Um, slowly but surely like i play some club events the amateur team tournament was a big one because i could play with the with the Rutgers team i went to Rutgers university in uh, new jersey yeah i was getting back into the swing of things i was playing some tournaments here and there but when uh the pandemic kind of hit and even before that there were a couple things that kind of like sort of were starting to motivate me to get back into competitive chess and one of them actually was the amateur team east because it's a huge tournament you know hundreds of teams and uh, it was my first kind of big tournament when I played in 2019, actually. It was my first big tournament in years. And it kind of gave me the chance to go back and see a lot of the people that I kind of remembered from the chess world, but I hadn't seen in many years. And some of them, you know, were maybe still on the same level they were, kind of like me, but many had far surpassed where they were. And that kind of like got me thinking, like, why am I kind of, you know, still here where I was? And they're all the way over here. Maybe some of them were like, 2100 last I saw them now they're like I am or something strength you know they're like making tremendous progress and uh that kind of got me thinking like you know I should put in some work and and start to move up in the chess world but uh, you know I was still busy with school at the time so it was just kind of in the back of my mind but another big thing was in college uh they actually started something called the collegiate chess league the CCL and uh it was basically just a blitz kind of tournament but every week we would compete with other schools. And that was fun just to kind of have that competitive uh, atmosphere. And uh, actually at the end of the season, it went from maybe like February until March or April or so. They organized this, this blitz tournament 
for basically everyone, all the participants, you know, the, the CCL had been divided into four divisions, but basically everyone um, from all divisions, if you wanted to play in this kind of end of season event, you could play it. And so in the second round, uh, I played against an IM actually who played on the UCLA team. And, you know, I was just, you know, having fun and I actually got a great position. I was basically one move away from winning the game. I just needed to find this one little maneuver that would have put him in a mating net. And I was just kind of like in, a little bit inexperienced at the time, got low on the clock and I just missed it. And he ended up putting me in a mating net and I lost. But, you know, that experience of me almost beating an IM was another thing that kind of told me like, buddy, like you got some potential. You got to get back in there and start training. So that kind of led me to create my channel. And uh, when I finished my fourth year of school back in May, of uh, 2020, I just started to play rapid games. Like that was the first thing I did. I said, okay, I'm gonna play 15 plus 10, one or two games a day, and then I'm just gonna analyze them. And I just basically stuck to that for months on end. I was just playing my games, kind of going through stuff. You know, I was getting back into the swing thing. So I was playing like every opening. I was playing E4, D4, C4, B3, just everything. You know, against uh, E4, D4, I was experimenting with maybe like five different defenses just to kind of see like, okay, do I want to stick to what I was playing for years or do I want to switch things up? Eventually I kind of find, found new different things that I sort of wanted to uh, experiment with and take to the next level. And so I did that. Other than that, um, I played some online tournaments, you know, obviously over the board had been shut down, but some clubs are holding some online events. So I kind of played in those. That was also good just to have that kind of competitive experience. Um, I've always been a blitz player, you know, growing up, like playing on ICC, the internet chess club, I was stuck at the same rating for many years because I was just playing blitz, like constantly not even reviewing the games. So another important thing is to review your blitz games, you know, even though blitz is. Wow. Even, even most, review blitz games, huh? Yeah. It's, I not never the, do that. it's not the most serious, you know, training, but if you can even take one thing away from a blitz game, I think that's huge. And I try to make sure I go through almost all the blitz games I play, whether it's just for a minute or five minutes, just to see like, okay, did I make some opening mistake that can easily be adjusted? Did I, you know, underestimate some positional maneuver or something like that? Just something that you can take away and, and kind of know you have to work on can be really good. Um, but basically I was just working on every aspect of my game that I felt needed work, like openings, total overhaul, you know, even up to like 1900 USCF, I didn't really have like a, a set opening repertoire. Like I kind of had some idea of how to play against like the Sicilian or the French or whatever, but I didn't really have like files. I didn't have any targeted prep. So that was a big step for me to kind of actually design an opening repertoire and have something for me to sort of follow. Um, I switched up a lot of openings as I kind of like progressed. And another interesting thing was actually for, you know, my whole life, basically I've been an E4 player. I've always been had kind of like a, a sharp tactical uh, play style, always wanted to go for the attack. But I started experimenting with the English opening because I realized that my positional kind of aspect of my game was really lacking. And that was kind of a segue for me to get into that and really train kind of a slower maneuvering type game that I really was missing kind of from my game. So that was good. And I still play the English, you know, although I've always kind of been an E4 player. Um, and yeah, you know, tactics, of course, always important End games, something to always look, uh, look for always important to work on. And, uh, yeah, basically 
everything here and there. So, um, so you, so basically, have you gotten a coach? No, you know, I haven't worked with a coach for the past, maybe, I don't know, seven years now. I think I, I last worked with a coach when I was 15 or 16. There was a period of about five years when I worked with an IM actually from Ukraine. I would have sort of lessons with him over Skype. Um, and that was good. I learned a lot of things from him. He kind of influenced a lot of uh, my opening repertoire and, and certain kind of ideas that I have about the game. But, you know, over time, uh, I was starting to kind of lose my motivation as a teen. You know, like you have other interests. You want to play like sports. I've always been a big fan of soccer and I was trying to play. Um, so it became kind of hard. So my work with him kind of like slowly began to decline. And eventually I decided to stop working with him. And that was kind of when I got out of uh, playing competitively. I just didn't really have that drive at the time. Um, so yeah, ever since then, I've kind of been working on my own. You know, actually, I did work briefly with uh, international master David Proust, uh through the Chess Dojo, which I can give a shout out to. They're kind of a, a community of uh, online improvers. They have a Discord, which I joined over the summer. And that was actually big for helping me find like training partners and, and stuff like that. And so they did sort of a, a coaching show back in, I think it ran from September through November, six week uh, show. And I worked with him on Twitch and uh, he, he coached me and this uh, streamer, Kimmy Lou. She's a pretty strong player herself about expert strength. So the three of us kind of had like training sessions every week. So that was good. But in terms of like a consistent, I've kind of been on my own, kind of driving my own path for the past several years. That uh, that that chess dojo thing. That's uh, that that show was that on. Yeah, yeah, that was on Twitch. They have sort of the the reruns on YouTube. You can find them if you look up their channel. And that's uh, like Kostya. Yeah, yeah. So the three kind of guys that started are are I am Kostya Kavutsky, I am David Pruis, and uh, Grandmaster Jesse Cry. They're mostly based on the West Coast, but uh, Jesse is actually on the East Coast, so they kind of have like shows at all times of day. They're very kind of educational based. Based channel what i like about them very kind of friendly community and uh yeah they do a lot of cool stuff this week's episode of 64 a chess podcast is brought to you by aim chess aim chess is an advanced analytics app designed to help you maximize your performance by targeting areas of improvement you can learn openings you can learn how to improve your tactics you can even learn things such as how strong your openings are where you're making mistakes how long you spend on mistakes Aim Chess can also take positions from your own games on LeeChess and Chess.com and turn them into instructive tactics for you to solve. All these things and many more features are available on the Aim Chess app, and for just $7.99 a month, you can access all these features. You can use code DAVID30 at checkout to get 30% off of your order. So I want to thank Aim Chess for its financial support. And I want to thank Magnus Carlson for buying Game Chess and therefore buying my podcast. So why don't you uh, talk a bit about uh, your results? You had you had some some really good uh, results at Cherry Blossom. Um, you know, maybe not talk about the game specifically, but like what were some good things you're doing, some bad things you're doing? Uh, you know, how did that go? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because I'm actually uh, I've been kind of slacking on analyzing my games from that. That's another big thing I didn't really mention in full is that one of the biggest ways that you really improve is by playing serious games and really analyzing them, you know, delving deep into your thought process during the game, trying to see what you were doing incorrectly and why, you know, like 
what were kind of the, the thinking that were going into your decisions and what can you learn from that? You know, tweak your thought process, what areas of your game will that push you to work on? So I actually played, I felt pretty well, but could have been better. You know, I started off with a win in that tournament. It was a very sharp game. I, I beat actually the highest rated player I've ever beat over the board. He was about 2130. And then I um, drew the next round against uh, a young kid. He was about almost master strength, about 2180, 2190. And then from there, I had uh, a couple more draws. And I ended up finishing uh, with four points out of seven. I had two wins, four draws, and one loss. So all in all, a pretty good result, I feel. I mean, my over-the-board rating was only about 1,900. Even though I was being actually uh, paired by my USCF online rating, which is about 2000 at the time, which kind of helped me uh, get paired against stronger players, which then obviously drove up my performance rating. So that was, that was honestly pretty clutch to, to kind of get that. But uh, yeah, it was a decent performance. I finished about like top 20 out of like 56 people, which Not for bad. me, it was a decent result. Yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't even know you could get an online USCF rating. Yeah. So that's, um, that's basically the, the tournaments that I've been playing over the past year. I, I want to say I've played about a dozen or so. I played, um, there's this kind of local um, sort of clubs chess school in Jersey called the International Chess Academy. I've played some of their like quad events. I played a couple of Charlotte events. They had some online opens. Those are actually really fun. I, I won the uh, 2000 section back in Jan- January. Yeah. And then also I actually played a Marshall event. That was one of the, the events that got me up to 2000. They had like their weekly Wednesday. I know that they uh, opened it back up in the club now. Yeah, I was but there. But they had it online a few times. So yeah, that was that was fun. And um, so you also, you've been doing, you start, did you start your YouTube channel recently? Yeah, I started my YouTube channel around the time that I was kind of getting back into serious chess. Um, I started it around the beginning of last June. So it's been about a year. I actually just put out a video like, sort of recapping my uh, progress that I've made over the past year. And uh, yeah, I just, for a while, I was posting kind of um, my impressions of my rapid games, which were like my main source of training at the time. But I do some other videos as well, you know, some sort of videos breaking down uh, master games, giving some pointers uh, for people, improvers. I do some other videos that are not so much into uh, specifically on chess. And those are some of the videos that have actually... uh, been my most successful funny enough um but yeah i just have plans to do some stuff helping beginners and also some sort of broader chess stuff about kind of like documenting tournament experiences and stuff that maybe like a broader public can sort of relate to have you uh have you considered maybe doing streaming yeah i actually was streaming a bit back in uh back last summer i was streaming a bit like maybe a couple times a week but you know, it's definitely tough to kind of get into it. I, I remember you mentioned that you were kind of streaming a bit too. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's definitely tough. You know, there is a huge audience, but there also are a lot of streamers and a lot of people that uh, have put in a lot of time and a lot of effort to build up their streams. And that's very respectable because it's definitely not an easy thing to to blow up in. You know, you might get lucky and have a lot of viewers or you might struggle and not have many at all. And also for me, I just feel like, I don't know when I play online or when I play blitz, like I can rage a lot. So I don't know if that's like the best for my brand, especially <laughs> since I got a lot of young, uh, young kids that I'm coaching. So, you know, maybe I'll just leave the streaming to other people. Yeah. Well, yeah. So you, and, uh, and also you mentioned coaching and I was kind of wondering like, um, 
You said you said you says on your Twitter that you've been coaching for six years. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I started coaching a bit in high school, actually. Um, it was around the time that I wasn't playing too many tournaments. So my parents were like, you know, okay, you stop playing tournaments, but why don't you do something to kind of give back, you know, to the community? You still have skills that you can sort of apply. And, you know, I was hesitant for a time, but eventually I kind of volunteered to start a chess program at my former elementary school uh, in Summit, New Jersey. I actually sort of started, it was kind of like a trial run, just did a, a couple sessions with a group of kids, just show them some stuff, you know, get them to play. And, you know, the, the feedbacks are really good. So we kind of like expanded it. And for two years, I basically volunteered and did that. And then uh, I started picking up some private students as well, you know, like kids who uh, maybe their parents were more interested in, in getting them into the game. And I would, you know, teach them here and there. And, uh, you know, it was hard to do kind of during college because I'd be off sort of on campus, like during the school year. But whenever I'd come home for the summers or during like winter break, and I would work with some kids. But uh, yeah, it was definitely hard to maintain during that period. But kind of like when the pandemic started, um, it became easier to kind of resume because everything moved online. So it just became easier. You know, you just do stuff through Zoom, do stuff, you know, via chess.com or, or chess kid. And so I've been kind of expanding my network of, uh, of kids that I work with. I also teach at a sort of art and math school, um, also in the, uh, the local area. So yeah, it's, it's been good. It's, I find it, it's pretty enjoyable working with kids. You know, they have like different sort of ranges of uh, behavior and kind of like maturity, you know, some are very focused, even at like five years old, others can be like, you know, 12 and up and they find it harder to focus, but you know, you just work with them all the same and kind of adapt to their needs. I even work with a couple of adults. I have a, a student who's like the same age as my dad, which is pretty funny. Um, but yeah, you know, he's, uh, he's really into it too. And he's been making pretty good progress. That's so awesome. yeah, you know, I'm open to working with people of, uh, of pretty much all, uh, ages and walks of life. Have you, um, you know, I've, I've had a few coaches, uh, on my show have, and I've always asked them the same question. Um, have you found that you've learned stuff from your students, like through the process? Cause I know there, there's, there's kind of a saying, um, that, you know, you learn things best when you teach. Right. Yeah. I think that that does apply to an extent, you know, when you kind of like have certain, certain understanding and you also like present it to them, it kind of like solidifies it in your mind. And yeah, I find that uh, it does do that. Like when I'm sort of thinking about how to explain something, it does sort of help me to understand on a deeper level. Because sometimes, you know, I catch myself thinking like, maybe I only understand a concept on a superficial level. And in order for me to explain it, I really got to like delve deeper into it and really, uh, really understand and I try to give my students a lot of like materials that kind of for my own games partially because I think it's like interesting for them you know to see like not just some random game but something that I actually played and something that was like influential for me to become like a chess player and uh yeah I think uh becomes useful for them I don't know I, I think it's, it's it's interesting too because you're you're kind of uh looking at your stuff online and following your progress on Twitter uh, and you guys can follow him on Twitter at it's chess under it's just chess games, just chess games. games. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And while you're on Twitter, you should also follow the podcast on Twitter at 64 podcast. That's right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm kind of curious. Um, 
I, I've, I've only found chess Twitter over the last like three months. I mean, I used to follow like on my, my own personal account. I always follow like Fide and Hikaru and Magnus and like Lawrence Trent that is some, at some point and, you know, kind of seeing all these like chess figures, but I didn't really realize that there is this like chess sub community on Twitter of like all these like colorful figures um, who are just, you know, all nerding out about books or their games and whatnot. Have you been on chess Twitter for a while? And also has that helped you with your improvement? Cause I mean, you've made some, some big progress over the pandemic. So. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's interesting. You mentioned that I actually only got onto like chess specific Twitter. Um, and that's only the, the only thing I really do on Twitter, to be honest. Like I, I had my Twitter before that at some point and I kind of deleted it. Cause I just figured it was like a waste of time. You know, I really only used it for like sports stuff before that, but yeah. Um, around like September, the time that I got onto that ultimate sensei show through the chess dojo, they were kind of advertising it through Twitter and I didn't have an account at the time. So I figured, you know, if they're going to advertise stuff and they're using my name, why don't I get a Twitter and, you know, be part of that. So yeah, I started one, started following some people and yeah, I kind of realized what the thing about you're, you're saying, there is definitely a big community, especially of like adult improvers or maybe they have like full-time jobs or, or, you know, all kinds of occupations, but they're very much uh, passionate about chess and they're trying to improve. So yeah, I've kind of interacted with some. I have uh, found, you know, some training partners through there as well. Just some people to kind of like share opinions with. Uh, people share puzzles all the time. It's pretty cool to see. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a useful resource um, to kind of have like, obviously you have like the big, big names and big uh, tournaments, big events you know, having their stuff on there. But I think the, the community of people is something definitely uh, that's pretty cool about chess Twitter. Yeah. I, I kind of feel bad because like my, my online presence is just, it's the most massive chess presence on Twitter. So, you know, I kind of feel bad for like the, no, of course I'm kidding. Um, yeah. But if you would like to help me make my uh, chess presence bigger, you know, follow the Twitter at 64 podcast, little shameless plug. Um, back to the discussion though. I don't want to get too much into the shameless self plugs. Um, what is your, what's your like ultimate goal now that you're taking chess a bit more seriously? Is there like, do you have a, a specific rating goal? Do you have just a more general concept of what you're kind of looking for in your improvement? Um, and I guess really what I'm curious about is what do you think you need to do in order to take that next step or next few steps? Right. So when I kind of got back into things again, this was about a year ago, I basically set a goal for myself that I want to reach uh, an M national master, which is about 2200 USCF, maybe about 2100 or so FIDE. And I want to hit that by the end of uh, 2022. So that gives me about a year and a half from this point, because I kind of figured at the time, you know, it's going to take a while for over the board tournaments to kind of come back. And I'm going to need to play at least a decent enough uh, amount of those to kind of get those numbers up. Um, so yeah, that's my, that's my goal around now. And, you know, to work towards that, I just have to work basically on all aspects of my game. You know, I think I've made a good amount of progress in terms of like openings and having a repertoire, but definitely a lot of like middle game uh, concepts and, and sort of ideas I need to improve on. End games, of course, are something that are always important and it just becomes more and more uh, important as, as, uh, as you improve because less and less games are kind of like decided in the middle game when everyone is a lot sharper and a lot of games will tend to go longer, even though in, in my most recent tournament, I really only had one game that 
went sort of deep into an end game. Maybe that's just because of my sort of like sharp play style that either, uh, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword, as they mm-hmm. say. But uh, yeah, definitely end games are very important. So I think that's one of the things that I will uh, have to dedicate a lot of time to. But I think a big part is just to play consistently because that's the only way you really know what you have to work on. So that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to as tournaments start to come back and more and more clubs open to have sort of a consistent, uh, consistent presence on the tournament stage. You know, my next event right now that I'm preparing for is the world open yeah, in uh, Philadelphia for next, yeah. around. Yeah. Fourth of July weekend, which I mean, talk about an intense tournament. I played one, which was seven rounds over four days. This one is going to be nine rounds over five days, which is pretty uh, crazy for me to think right now. You know, it's, it's tough. Like, yeah not going to lie, um, in terms of like maintaining energy throughout that event. Like, for example, I'll give you an example in, in Cherry Blossom. So my first game was pretty good, but I had driven there for four hours to get there. Then I played a four-hour game. And then for some reason, I don't know, maybe it was like my adrenaline was so high from the, from the win or whatnot. I had a hard time falling asleep. You know, I didn't get much sleep into the next day. And the morning round was fine, but the evening game, I would just awful i mean i ended up blundering that was the only game of the tournament that i lost and then i actually signed up for a fide blitz event because i just wanted to play like an over the board blitz tournament and i'm usually pretty good in blitz but i scored like three out of nine i mean one game i literally hung a full queen like a guy had a bishop on h8 and a king on g1 and i thought hallucinated thought he had a knight on h8 played queen d4 thinking i was forking them and literally just gave up a queen so yeah it was a it was a tough one and it just goes to show like sleep very important in a tournament and yeah yeah that's something definitely i'm gonna have to uh to work on yeah i mean uh i i definitely agree i mean i at the last uh last thursday i played uh my first tournament again and I, I basically i had graduated the day before um from wesleyan university in connecticut and i had not slept for the past two days just because like you know partying and whatnot um and you know seeing friends for like the last time my brothers came to visit so uh you know all to say i was extremely tired and i scored over four um because i was just not tired i was kind of hallucinating at one point um about one of my games like kind of like you said you thought it was bishop was a knight i had something yeah. like very similar and also i hadn't played over the board in so so long like i didn't even own a board uh really until like april uh so yeah, no, sleep is very important. And those of you listening to this pod right now or maybe preparing for your own tournaments, make sure make sure you uh don't have that like eleven PM beer. Like don't have don't stay up till midnight watching YouTube. Like get get your Yeah, rest, definitely. You know, get your Yeah, morning. whether if you have to like take a melatonin or something just to make sure you know you're going to bed on time, very important. Just to make sure you have those those energy levels. You'll uh you'll thank yourself later for it when you're still able to focus after like eight hours of playing. So, so, you know, as a, as a, like a, a club, well, hopefully not club for a lot much longer. Hopefully you have like a, another great deal of improvement. Um, but, you know, as someone who's like, you know, that upper tier club slash tournament, club, right. what are your, what's the kind of openings you play? So, as I mentioned, like, I've always been an E4 player. Um, and uh, it's, it's funny, like when I kind of got back into competitive uh, chess, like I was mostly playing sort of like game 45, game 50 club tournaments at my local club in uh, Westfield, New Jersey. They've been around for a long time. I think like one of the longest in, uh, in the state, if not if the country. Um, 
And I would always just like show up like my only training at the time was just playing blitz. Like I would play like a dozen games a day or whatever, pretty much like throughout and not much else. Like I wasn't even analyzing those games at the time. But, you know, I just kind of had a sense of like how to play against a Sicilian. And luckily for me, like I swear, like 80 percent of games are in the Sicilian. Like People, whether they're playing the Nidorf, the Dragon, you know, the the con like me, the Sveshnikov, like a lot of games in the Sicilian. So it was just kind of like I didn't have to have a crazy amount of prep. I just knew like people are going to play the Sicilian and I have to know kind of what to do. Um, with black, I actually played the Sicilian myself. I played the, the con variation, E6 and then A6 later. And I played that for many years from maybe like 13 to 1900. Lately, I've kind of uh, switched away. I've been experimenting with like Perk, Modern, uh, even Philidor type openings. Um, it was actually Simon Williams. He came out with this course. Uh, he called it like the lion yeah. defense because it's kind of like a it's a different move order between the perk and the Philidor. It's kind of like this hybrid. And I, and I really enjoyed it. I've been playing a lot um, over the past like year or so. And that's kind of been a staple of my repertoire. So you've been and then even like against D4. Course? So again, you've been using that chessable course. Yeah, I kind of so I use the chessable course to kind of get into things and, and learn kind of the the lines that I needed to get into it. But you know, chessable is a great resource, like, don't get me wrong, but I find, like, a lot of times when you're looking at lines that go past, like, 10 moves or something, it just starts to become impractical because, you know, maybe they're, like, top engine moves, but if you're playing against someone, even on, like, a pre-master level, they might not be playing those, like, super most critical lines. So you're kind of just... I would say you, usually not. Yeah, it, it's more important to just kind of, you know, have, like, a, a basis of what to do. And then go out there and play games, What even if it's just Blitz, and see, you know, what do people play against this and that, and what lines do people like, and then kind of, like, design your own repertoire around that. And that's kind of what I did. And so I know, like, okay, maybe the chessable course says one thing, but I know that realistically, like, this is really what people play. And so I kind of, uh, you know, adapt my repertoire to that. Um, but, yeah, that was a good thing to kind of get me into the into playing a new opening. Um, against D4, I've experimented with a lot of different things, and I kind of have like a, a, a slightly unorthodox system of how I play. Um, and yeah, you know, it definitely it's important to have an opening repertoire when you're past like even 1800, you know, definitely on like the, the 2000 plus level, it, it pays off. Like in my first round game in Cherry Blossom, you know, the first like eight, nine moves just came natural to me. And already, you know, I had a great position. My opponent wasn't really comfortable with what was going on. And I kind of like use that momentum to win the game. So it definitely becomes uh, becomes very important. But also yeah. I should add like chessable isn't the only thing out there. You know, I've gotten a lot of uh, interesting opening ideas from from YouTube. Like two great channels I can give a shout out to is one is uh, I am uh, Mio the Butcher, Mio Drag Perunovic. He's a Serbian coach. He's actually sometimes he's uh, on the Chess Bra channel. Um, and he has a lot of great opening suggestions. He also kind of has like a similar style to me where he's a very sharp tactical dude. And so I've taken a lot of his opening suggestions and kind of like molded them into my uh, repertoire. And then also uh, chess coach uh, Andras, Andras Toff, international master from Australia. He has a very good channel. And he also does a lot of like, not even so much specific lines, but like just kind of ideas of how to play certain openings and certain like structures that I've also been benefited a lot from. So, yeah, I think like even if you don't you know, necessarily want to go out and splurge on a chessable course, there's a lot of channels that have edu educational content and you can learn a lot from that. Or even just like looking at master databases to kind of see like, you know, what do, uh, what do top level people play? 
or even on like the middle master level. And you can kind of just, uh, you know, go off that. Yeah. I mean, actually with, with Chessable, I, I kind of felt the same way. Um, <laughs> I, I got a course on the exchange Rui Lopez, uh, just cause that's something that I, I really just like want to make my own. Um, just because I, I online, I face Rui Lopez so often that it's just, uh, and you know, people kind of defer from the critical lines. Like, like they, a lot of people don't play Morphe's defense. They'll play like the, you know, improved Steinitz or Berlin or something. But when right. I get that, when I get that eight, like when I see that a six, um, so I been of course by Erwin Lamy, but I'm not even joking. There was like a couple of variations in like one of the, one of like the main lines that is like 28 moves long that you have to memorize. Yeah, man, there's that's, no way. that's yeah, crazy. I just don't like, I just, it's not even like there's some like positional idea there that there is to remember. It's just like, it's just this whole line that's just in the course. And it's like, I'm not memorizing. Like I yeah. just learned you can pause lines though. And that you don't have to review. And I I'm like going through the course right now and finding like all these like 30 yeah. variations or things that end up being that long and just pausing that. Cause like, just like you said, it's it's impractical. Like most people are not going to be like that, at least at my level. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, what you also mentioned that you you experimented with the English. Uh, but you said, are you still playing with the English? Or yeah, you- I, I am playing it. I would say like between E four and C four, I have like about a three to one split. Where I'm mostly leaning towards E four, just because that's like that's my territory. That's what I've been playing for years, so I'm comfortable there. But the so English, say, I do play a good amount. So let's say you're you know you're in a tournament, you're you're at the board, you know, you have the white pieces. Why do you choose one over the other? Yeah, that's actually interesting that uh, you mentioned that. So what I'll try to do, like what I did for Cherry Blossom is I'll try to sort of like prep for my opponents a bit ahead of time um, because I know kind of like the field of, you know, who obviously I don't know who um, I'm going to be paired with for each round specifically, but I know sort of a general sense of the field of who I'm going to be playing. So I'll kind of just look at their openings and, uh, Based on what they play against, like, E4 or C4, that might sway me towards one or the other. And also, I know, like, you know, I might just have the English kind of as a backup option. Like, for example, for one round, um, going into the game, I didn't really know what my opponent played against E4 because he only had, like, two games in the database. And one was from, like, years ago when someone played the bird opening against them, which I'm not going to play, you know. So I don't know what he plays against the, as black, really. So I just decided to play the English uh, because I figure like, you know, worst case scenario, I'll just have some some system that I've played a couple times and I'm relatively comfortable with it. Not really any room for me to go wrong in the opening. You know, worst case scenario, just I make a mistake in the middle game. But uh, as far as the opening, I'll pretty much be set. So, um, yeah, so I, I just have a couple more questions. Um, yeah, sure. First of all, you said you're playing in the world open. Right. And that's going to be in Philly um have you ever played in the world open before no this is gonna be my first one yeah it was always very daunting for me like i would hear people talking about it at like at the club they're like oh are you playing the world open are you and like it sounded interesting but at the same time like you know it's one thing to play a club event when you come and like you know play a couple rounds and and then go home or even like a a two to two or three day thing but playing like a five-day tournament with like huge prize on the line and all that that's like a whole different beast so it wasn't really something that i really saw myself doing like as a kid like you know i was into it enough to play some club events and stuff but to play like a such a tremendous tournament that's you know everything on the line plus i don't know if like my parents even would have uh cared enough to take me like I, they were very supportive like don't get me wrong but like 
to play a five-day event like that, like that's that's a whole nother level of commitment. And I mean, Philly is pretty close to where you live too. So it's not yeah, like- Yeah, yeah, I live in, in North Jersey. So that's not a problem for me to get to. It's like about an hour and a half. But also like it's like- Cherry Blossom, I had to drive like four hours, yeah. which was, uh, that was tough. But like, if you're going to go to Philly for five days with your family when you're younger, like you're not going to like really vacation in Philly. Like- Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're going there for, for a specific- yeah. Purpose. Now, it, maybe this is an ignorant question, but um, is the World Open FIDE rated or is it only U.S.? Players? It is. Yeah, it is FIDE rated. And there's going to be a lot of foreign players, like especially in the open section. It attracts some like big names, like people who are in the top 100 in the world because you know, the prizes there are like massive for, yeah. for a, a big open. So if you're not getting, if you're not getting, um, so will you be getting USCF rating even against those? Yeah, guys? yeah. So you basically get both. And, you know, Cherry Blossom was the same way. The difference is, though, with USCF, like, you could potentially get your rating, you know, a day after the tournament's over. If the, the director is very diligent, you know, he gets everything through and the federation just kind of inputs everything. You know, you can know your rating, like, sometimes that night or the next morning. Um, but with FIDE, the way I understand it, they only update it, like, every month. Right. So they'll have sort of, like, a delegation or whatever at the beginning of the month, and that's when they'll input things. So, like, I've known my post uh, USCF rating for the cherry blossom for the past like week or, or two already. Um, but FIDE, I might have to wait until like July 1st to know what my provisional, you know, FIDE rating is because I've never had one. You know, that was the first big event that I've played uh, that has uh, FIDE ratings. But it's also interesting because I mean, if you like, you can compare like USCF ratings to FIDE ratings, but there is a difference. So yeah, it's, and it's interesting too, because there's so few FIDE events in the U.S., that there's like these kids who have like only played like two FIDE events. So their FIDE rating is like 1700 and their USCF rating is like 2250 because they're just been killing it. You know, they play like every week on clubs, but those tournaments aren't FIDE rated right? because to, you know, play in a FIDE rating event, you have to go to one of these, you know, national open world open or one of these, something like the cherry blossom. That's not, you know, on the most massive scale, but is still a big event that has international players. So they kind of have some incentive to, uh, to make it FIDE rated because the way I understand it, I think like the, the directors have to pay an extra amount to kind of go through that process of having, having it FIDE rated, which is why like there are definitely a shortage of FIDE rated events uh, in the U S why a lot of players, you know, when they're hunting for norms or whatnot, that's why they'll go and play in Europe because it's just easier to, to go through that whole process. Well, there's that I am from New Jersey who's like 12 years old and uh, he's playing. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He's over there. I think in Hungary right now, he's hunting. Yeah. He like, uh, if he wins his next few games, that's it. You know, yeah, that would be amazing. That'd be really, really awesome. I'm rooting for him big time. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, last question. Something I ask everybody. Um, and we've gotten many different answers. I actually, I'm not sure that there's been a repetition yet. Um, but I always, I ask people and especially you as a coach, I'm curious what your answer will be. Um, if you had one opening that you had to teach to somebody, like, you know, somebody holds a gun to your head and they're like, you got to teach this opening to me. Mm -hmm. White piece, black piece, E4, D4, doesn't matter, whatever you want. What are you picking and why? Right. So, well, first of all, let me just say, I, I think that I would want to tell everyone to at least one time or another play the open Sicilian, whether it's with, with uh, white or black, just to get that experience because it's really like the most fun kind of like aspect of the game it just like it leads to the most wild kind of like dynamic fights but as far as like an actual opening system i would recommend uh and, and people might laugh at this name but i refer to it as the lion defense it's basically e4 d6 
D4, Knight F6, Knight C3, Knight B, D7. So it's kind of like a, it's a hybrid between the Philidor and the Perk, but the actual structures and positions you get are more kind of resemblant of like a Nidorf, while others are more sort of like a Roy Lopez because it's like a double King Pawn type position. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been playing that for the past year and, and I really enjoy it. You know, there's sometimes even like titled players who don't really know how to play against it. And you can get a, a great edge like with Black out of the opening. And uh, yeah, I mean, as with any opening, like with black, there is a lot of lines you have to memorize a lot that are like very dangerous that you have to be very well prepared for. So it's going to take some work as with any opening, but I think it's a, uh, it's a great system. And, you know, I'm someone that I like to see variety. Like, I don't want to just play what everyone else plays, you know, like no offense. Like, yeah, if you play like E5, you play C5, you know, that's like 80% of players, but I really like to see um, more kind of like a variety of openings. So that's something that I've been enjoying playing. And uh, yeah, I recommend people try it out. Well, yeah, if you guys want to learn how to play the lion, this is a course on Chessable. I'm not sponsored by Chessable. Hey, Chessable, <laughs> if you're listening, you want to sponsor me, we can talk about it, but I'm not sponsored by Chessable. I'm just a big fan. Um, if you want to learn how to play the lion, there's probably some videos too, but the lion, you can get a course on Chessable about it. Um, you can follow uh, Max on Twitter at chess gains gains with the z that's and then that's right also on youtube same thing as the twitter handle it's c-h-e-s-s-g-a-i-n-z uh growing chess channel and also you know chess gains so you you must like to lift that's right yeah and you know that's part of the reason that kind of uh led to me taking a break from the competitive game because it's so hard to balance all that you know being in the gym and eating right while playing in tournaments you know forget it like i was if you're not eating at the board, like it, it's just hard. Right. Well, my dad you made know, a joke. Like, my dad yeah. made a joke uh, over uh, last week that the the heaviest weight I've ever lifted is a chess piece. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. For yeah. for a lot of chess players, that's true, and uh, that's yeah. that's part of what I'm trying to do. You know, bring bring that kind of like uh, that energy of uh, of the gym life into chess. You know, there's a lot of similarities. It's in a lot of ways, they're both kind of a, a mental game. You got to be really really tough and and overcome a lot of obstacles. Mm -hmm. um but yeah it definitely is tough to balance it's something that i'm still trying to find a good balance between you know going to the gym having a good diet and then also playing in tournaments you know putting in a lot of work on on chess but you know it's very rewarding so gotta try to try to make it work and you know i've, I've plugged everything else but i would be remiss if i forgot to, to you know i did say you're a coach you told me you're a coach um are you taking students currently that's right. Yeah, I am taking students. I work mostly with kids right now, but I'm open to people, like I said, of pretty much all ages. So, you know, if anyone wants to reach out, reach to work for me, you can uh, you can message me on Twitter. You can also email me um, at uh, Maxim, M-A-X-I-M, Barber, F-A-R-B-E-R at gmail.com. But Twitter also works uh, perfectly fine. You can just uh, reach out to me and uh, yeah, we can discuss. I've been working with people for about six years and uh, mm -hmm really enjoy working with people seeing them improve as well well yeah here, here's to six more years and also um i i hope next time i have you on the on the show you'll have a nice nm title next to your name i appreciate uh, that until then i'll be i'll be following your progress um yeah thanks so much for coming on the show uh to my listeners thanks so much for listening to the 64 podcast once again um well i guess it's 64 a chess podcast uh but i've been calling it the 64 podcast too uh you know call whatever you want whatever it is uh thanks for listening to uh this week's episodes and i uh, will see you soon